You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. I'm Dr. Morgan Martin, and I have with me Dr. Sanam Zahidi. Today's episode is a resident guided in-service review of the anxiously awaited and highly anxiety-provoking topic, craniofacial. Yeah, we're here to make this topic easier for you guys. So keep in mind, this is a supplementary episode and not meant to be a comprehensive review. We took this information from reviewing the exam for the past five years. And after going through questions again, you are very unlikely to encounter, for example, a gene question that is not covered here. And as we always like to say, make sure that you take a look at our YouTube channel because here we will have not only graphs to sort out all this information, but also photos to help you visualize all the syndromes. Images for this video are provided by our friends at KenHub. If you want to learn more about anatomy, histology, or medical imaging, go and check out their website at www.kenhub.com. There's also a link provided on the description note below. Let's get started with anatomy before we get to the bigger topic of craniosynostosis. Let's discuss the anatomy of the skull base. There's some important structures to note that are exiting at certain foramen. For the middle cranial fossa, you have the foramen rotundum has the V2 or trigeminal nerve maxillary branch that exits. For foramen ovale, you have the V3 or the mandibular branch of the trigeminal nerve that exits. For the stylomastoid foramen, you have the facial nerve. And for the foramen lacerum, you have the internal carotid artery. The glossopharyngeal vagus and the spinal accessory all come out of the jugular foramen. Yeah, I'm never going to forget the stylomastoid foramen has the facial nerve exit because I had one patient with a gunshot wound that destroyed the stylomastoid foramen and had a facial nerve palsy. So just remember that for the test. So moving on to the oral anatomy dentition. So let's talk about embryology. There are two cell types, ameloblast and odontoblast. For odontoblast, these are mesenchymal cells and they form the pulp and root the nerve, and the vessel. Now let's focus on the parotid gland. In terms of innervation, it has both autonomic and sensory innervation. So the autonomic is going to come from the parasympathetic, and it's from the glossopharyngeal nerve or cranial nerve 9, and the sensory is from the auricular temporal nerve. Really quick, let's talk about the external ear sensory innervation. Now you will hear about this in the ear reconstruction episode, but really quickly, so the nerves are the great auricular nerve, the lesser occipital nerve, the auricular temporal nerve, and the glossopharyngeal nerve. So Morgan, since you brought up the auricular temporal nerve, what's Frey syndrome? This is gustatory sweating, and this usually happens after parotidectomy. This occurs due to damaged branches of the auricular temporal nerve that usually cause secretion of saliva that reinnervate as a sympathetic course causing the gustatory sweating. So to diagnose this, you use a minor starch iodine test, and you can treat it with using Botox. All right, now let's move on to first establish what is normal and some definitions. Okay, Sanam, what is the normal age of suture closure? Well, let's talk about the four sutures that we have, right? You have the metopic suture, sagittal, coronal, and lamboid. The first one that closes is the metopic suture at six months of age. And that's important to note because if we're ever going to get tested, they're going to distinguish this between the rest of them. So the other ones all close in your 20s, but let's break it down. The sagittal suture at age 22, the
the coronal at age 24, and the lamboid at age 26. Okay, and what are the fontanelles? You have the anterior, which closes last, usually around two years of age, the posterior, the mastoid, and the sphenoidal. And talk to me about what is syndrome versus sequence? So a syndrome is symptoms or findings that are always found together versus a sequence is one anomaly that causes the other associated findings and symptoms. An example would be Pierre-Robin's sequence, which we will talk about in detail later on. All right, let's talk about craniosynostosis. Craniosynostosis is a pathologic condition associated with the premature fusion of one or more cranial sutures leading to a corresponding deformity of the vault and cranial base. This causes restricted growth perpendicular to the suture and growth parallel to the suture line. It can be related to a syndrome or it can be non-syndromic. Syndromic craniosynostoses are less frequent than non-syndromic craniosynostoses, which have a reported frequency of between 0.4 and 1.0 per 1,000 live births. First, a word about non-syndromic. The pathogenesis of non-syndromic craniosynostosis is multifactorial, with some evidence that certain forms may be related to genetic mutations, but less so than with cases of syndromic craniosynostosis. And the most commonly reported gene mutations, I hope everyone's listening, are FGFR3, FGFR2, and TWIST1. So it is not entirely clear how these mutations cause craniosynostosis, but it is likely a result of abnormal signaling of growth factors in stem cells at the dura mater cranial suture interface. And the growth of the infant's cranial vault is directly related to the growing brain. And in some cases, its restriction may lead to changes in skull shape and increased intracranial pressure. Makes sense, right? You have a box. And if that's the box that's going to dictate how much pressure you have, how much your brain is growing inside of that box is going to determine the intracranial pressure. And the effects of elevated intracranial pressure as a result of craniosynostosis on neurodevelopment in children is controversial. But the treatment of the calvarial orbital deformity may lead to improved skull shape and neuropsychological well-being. So the associated findings of elevated intracranial pressure versus pepilodema and associated with a cranial nerve 6 palsy. And this is because cranial nerve 6 has the longest pathway through the dura. You will also see loss of visible gyri with split ventricles. Now let's go over the basics of each synostosis. Let's start off with sagittal synostosis. This is the most common synostosis. So it's called scaphocephaly or dolicocephaly. Imagine the sagittal suture fusing. So now growth is just going to be parallel to this line and nothing is going to be able to grow perpendicular. So that's why you have this biparietal narrowing because the head is just from the posterior to the anterior is just elongating out and it's lengthened in the AP direction. The skull is wider at the forehead with bilateral frontal bossing and narrow near the back. The fontanelle is either closed or absent early in life and the most common cause is prematurity. So the treatment is, if the patient presents late at one year of age, then you can do a total cranial vault. If they come in earlier, there's other options, which we're going to get into a little later. Next is mectopic synostosis or trigonencephaly. So remember, this starts closing in infancy around six months and is closed at one year. But if you see a narrow triangular forehead, wedge-shaped, thickened glabella, and a palpable mectopic ridge, 
this is pathologic versus you can see a normal variant, which is a metopic ridge without changes in skull shape. So keep in mind the pathologic version with a narrow triangular forehead, they will have an absent fontanelle, bilateral growth restriction of the forehead with bitemporal narrowing and hypotelorism with orbital retrusion. And this can be associated with pituitary issues and midline defects. I always remember this because I have a child that's two years old and I can still feel his metopic ridge, but he has a normal head shape. So just remember infants with a palpable metopic ridge can be normal and the treatment is just observation. Next, we're going to talk about unilateral coronal synostosis, also called anterior plagiocephaly. When you think of this, think of the Harley Quinn eye deformity, where you radiographically see superior displacement of the greater wing of the sphenoid, which basically causes an elevation of the ipsilateral superior orbital rim with flattening. And if with all this jargon we haven't confused you yet, then make sure you're paying attention to our YouTube so you can actually follow along with pictures. You're going to see bulging at the contralateral side, and the eye gets pulled up superiorly, and you see flattening of the forehead on that side. The nasal bridge also gets pulled towards the synostosis, and the chin points away from it. The ipsilateral ear is anteriorly displaced. In terms of treatment, you do a frontal orbital advancement. Next is unilateral lambdoid synostosis, or posterior plagiocephaly. So this is ipsilateral parieto-occipital flattening, ipsilateral mastoid bossing, and protuberance of the contralateral forehead. They will have a trapezoidal-shaped head, and they have a posterior displacement of the ear on the side of the occipital flattening. And the treatment is posterior vault remodeling. This is often confused with positional plagiocephaly, which is a normal head flattening from babies laying too much on one side, also called deformational plagiocephaly. Ipsilateral forehead protuberance and anterior head displacement, ipsilateral occipital flattening, and no ipsilateral mastoid bossing. And the shape is the head of a parallelogram. That is all descriptive of deformational plagiocephaly. Now, Morgan, what are some examples of multiple suture synostosis? So first, think about turicephaly. Turi means tall, cephaly means head. So this is a vertically tall head, and it's from long-term bicoronal synostosis. Okay, so you said turicephaly and tall. What about, is there anyone that's associated with short? Yes, so also bicoronal synostosis, you can see brachycephaly. So brachy means short, and these patients have a short, flat head. They have frontal bossing, elevation of both brows, and widening of the temporal area. So if not corrected, these brachycephalic patients will eventually become turicephaly. And is there another multiple suture synostosis that, that would easily roll off the tongue? Okay, this one is very easy to remember because it has a weird name. It's called Klebach-Schlottel skull deformity. Okay, this is the Swiss cheese skull. And so by definition, all the sutures are fused. What you will see is a skull that looks like a clover leaf, okay? And the treatment is emergent decompressive craniectomy because these patients, by definition, will have a high intracranial pressure. Okay, now let's talk about surgery. So early surgical interventions are aimed at reducing intracranial pressure and normalizing skull shape. The timing of cranial vault remodeling balances the need for cranial decompression with the limited advancement and weaker bone available in younger children. 
What are the surgical indications in non-syndromic synostosis? The two big ones are intracranial hypertension and mental impairment. As you can imagine, this is going to be kind of hard to identify in an infant, right? However, when indicated, a fundoscopic exam is performed to assess for papilledema, which when present may suggest increased intracranial pressure. Another indication is simply creating a more normal shape as this can have significant psychological implications. And timing depends on severity. So as I said before, pansynostosis or that klebox-shalotl, this is a relative emergency. The optimal timing and type of surgical correction of non-syndromic single-suture craniosynostosis continues to be a source of controversy. So we won't get into the weeds here, but ideally this should be performed between the ages of six and nine months. But let's talk about surgical options. For sagittal synostosis, conventional vault remodeling is still considered gold standard for sagittal synostosis, particularly in patients that are treated at an older age, so older than six months. There's also spring-mediated cranioplasty, and this is performed with strip craniectomy, and generally it is felt to be most efficacious if applied before four months of age. And there's also some versions of endoscopic craniectomy, but this must be performed under six to nine months. So you can see the theme here is that the less invasive has to be performed earlier in the younger patients, and then the older gets the traditional cranial vault remodeling. Yep, sounds good, Morgan. Uh, The next one is metopic. There's typically some variation of the standard frontal orbital advancement technique that's used, and it allows for rounding of the forehead and widening and advancement of the supraorbits to be accomplished. So next, unicoronal synostosis. So this is anterior vault reconstruction with some variation of frontal orbital advancement. Let's move on to talk about syndromic synostosis surgery. And there's a CME article from PRS that has a nice algorithm from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for the management of children with syndromic craniosynostosis. The goals of cranial vault remodeling in syndromic craniosynostosis are, number one, to enlarge the cranial volume so as to optimize cerebral blood flow and prevent sequelae of intracranial pressure. And number two, to improve abnormal morphology of the skull, orbits, and upper jaw. Later surgical interventions are aimed at correcting mid-phase hypoplasia. And these principles are typically the same for also non-syndromic craniosynostosis. First, let's talk about this algorithm that's in the paper that we just mentioned from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. After birth, the child needs to be assessed for functional concerns you need to check for increased intracranial pressure. And so if this is the case in less than three months, these patients need craniectomy or shunt. You also need to check for ocular issues. They may need a tarsorophy. Also check for airway compromise because they may need a tracheostomy. But three to six months of age, earlier if increased intracranial pressure, but a standard three to six months, these patients undergo posterior fault destruction osteogenesis. Those patients are then allowed to grow, and then when they are much older, so between the ages of five and eight years of age, they can undergo either monoblock, mid-face advancement, frontal orbital advancement, or even repeat posterior vault distraction osteogenesis. The relative indications for this, for monoblock, this would be frontal and mid-face retrusion, small expansion intracranial volume, exorbitism, or obstructive sleep apnea. For a mid-face advancement, mid-phase or malar retrusion, exorbitism, or obstructive sleep apnea, 
Next, for frontoorbital advancement, this is for frontal retrusion, exorbitism, or again, small expansion intracranial volume. And then those who need repeat posterior vault destruction osteogenesis, again, for the need for expansion intracranial volume or for brachycephaly. Timing of surgery is tailored to addressing the functional need with surgery delayed if possible to between, like I said, five and eight years of age, at which point the orbits have essentially reached physical maturity. These patients can have recurrence, and the most common cause is due to the mandible growing faster than the maxilla. This was a great review. Thanks, Morgan. Now let's move on and discuss all of the syndromic synostoses in detail. The most common syndromic craniosynostoses are primarily autosomal dominant, and they're FGFR-related with Turi brachycephaly associated with bicoronal synostosis being the most common pattern. The five most common forms are Cruzon, Aper, Pfeiffer, Mwinky, and Sate-3-Chosen. Phenotypic differences in the hands and feet can usefully distinguish among FGFR-related craniosynostoses. So I made a diagram that you can find on the YouTube channel to help clarify all of what we are about to discuss. This is very confusing to me, so I made this to try to organize it in my mind, so I'm going to talk you through it. Keep in mind, all of these are syndromic craniosynostosis. So we have FGFR2, which is Cruzon, Apert, and Pfeiffer. We then have FGFR3, which is Moinke. You can also see a variation of Cruzon syndrome with the addition of acanthosis nigricans. We next have twist 1 which is Sather Chosen, and then finally, RAB23, which is Carpenter Syndrome. Now let's break these down even further, starting with Cruzon Syndrome. Another name for that is craniofacial dystosis. It is autosomal dominant, and like Morgan said, it's associated with FGFR2. It's seen in about 1 to 60,000 life births. The dominant features are bilateral coronal synostosis with a common head shape of brachycephaly. There's hypoplastic midface with exorbitism, more significant than appers. Now, the exorbitism is orbital bulging due to decreased volume of the bony orbit. And you also have a parrot beak nose, micronathia, no hand involvement, and the intelligence is normal. Moving on to aperts. So this is also referred to as acrocephalosyndactyly, since this syndrome always involves premature fusion of cranial sutures and abnormalities of the limbs, in this case, syndactyly. The genetic mutation is FGFR2. Again, just like Cruzon syndrome, FGFR2. It is autosomal dominant and is mostly sporadic. So this is rare and occurs between 1 in 64,000 and 1 in 80,000. The major diagnostic features include, again, bicoronal synostosis, and the head shape can be either turibrachycephaly or brachycephaly. They have a large anterior fontanelle with open metopic suture to compensate. They have mid-face hypoplasia, a V-shaped dental arch leading to a high arched palate, cleft palate, and a crowded dental arch. They have class 3 malocclusion with an anterior open bite. For their orbits, they have exorbitism. Now, keep in mind, like Sinam said earlier, exorbitism means their orbit is small, and that's why their eye looks to be bulging. They also have hypertelorism, 
which is wide orbits, and this is compared to like an NOA fracture, which is telecanthus, a widened medial canthus without wide orbits. They have downslanting palpebral fissures. They also have specifically limb anomalies, so syndactyly. This is bilateral and equal and affects the hand and the feet, usually digits two through four, and is commonly referred to as mitten hands. These patients commonly have mental retardation due to agenesis of the corpus callosum. They can also have vertebral fusions. Moving on to Pfeiffer, it's another syndrome associated with uh, fibroblast growth factor 2, and it's autosomal dominant. It's more rare than the other two, and it's seen in about 1 in 100,000 live births. The features are severe mid-phase hypoplasia and bicoronal craniosynostosis. This is the key phrase you will see on the test, broad thumbs and great toes. There are three types. Cohen 1 is the classic type where you have symmetric bicoronal synostosis, broad thumbs, brachydactyly, variable syndactyly, and variable mid-face deficiency. Cohen 2 is the cloverleaf skull, which is a multi-suture synostosis, as we talked about before, with ocular proptosis, severe mid-face retrusion, and digital anomalies. And there's poor survival with these patients. And Cohen 3 is an intermediate. You have a bicoronal synostosis, an isolated fusion of the others. And it's similar to a type 2, but the synostosis isn't as severe. Next is Mwenke syndrome. For the genetics, this is FGFR3. So it is 1 in 30,000, so more common than the previously mentioned syndromes. The dominant features include variable coronal synostosis, mid-face hypoplasia, hypertelorism, and overall they have very mild facial features and can sometimes actually go undiagnosed. Some of the key words that you're going to see on the test, they can have some limb involvement and you will see the term thimble-like middle phalanges. They can also have carpal fusion and calcaneal tarsal fusion. Next is the Sather chosen craniocephalosyndactyly. It's associated with twist. It's seen between 1 in 25 to 50,000 live births. It can be autosomal dominant and sporadic, and the features are similar to APRs with the addition of ptosis. There's bilateral coronal synostosis, usually shape of the brachycephaly, maxillary hypoplasia, low hairline, small pina of the ear with prominent superior crus cleft lip or high arched palate, and they may have a flat nasal dorsum with a parrot beak nose, clinodactyly, brachydactyly, simple syndactyly, and a normal intelligence. So instead of remembering that laundry list, here are some things to remember for Sather Chotzen that will be keywords on the test. Twist gene, low hairline, ptosis, and syndactyly. Great, that's a great way to remember it. All right, moving on to Carpenter syndrome. So the genetics for this, it's RAB23. It is autosomal recessive. These patients can have craniosynostosis with variable sutures. And what can be seen is lambdoidal, sagittal, and cloverleaf. All of those are seen with this syndrome. They have low-set malformed ears with deafness. For extremities, they can have synbrachydactyly of both fingers and toes, as well as preaxial polydactyly. They can also have cardiac involvement, which would be an ASD or VSD, and there's usually mental retardation and growth retardation. 
Moving on to syndromes associated with clefts, there's Pierre-Robin, which is a sequence, not a syndrome. One event leads to the other malformations. So three things. You have retrogenia, glossoptosis, and airway obstruction. Not all have clefts. About 50% midline U-shaped cleft palates are seen. They're isolated, and the gene you can see associated with this is SOX9, but can also be a part of a broader metabolic disturbance. And the syndromes we see associated with Pierroban are Stickler, Nagur, and Treacher Collins. It's important to manage their airways because the tongues can obstruct them. Initially, you want to put them in a prone position, and then you can do a nasal pharyngeal tube potentially. The surgical management involves distraction osteogenesis with mandibular advancement, and you can also do a tongue-to-lip adhesion. And the definitive treatment is tracheostomy in patients with multi-level obstructions. Yes, the way I've seen this tested is that they will give you an example of a patient with Pierre-Robin, and then they will also say they have like some tracheal webbing or something. And so when that's the case, there's something in addition to the classic Pierre-Robin, that's when you trach the patient. And another important point, so although we always think about Pierre-Robin as having clefts, one of my attendings explained this really well to me, that the original description of this sequence was those three, the retrogenia, glossoproptosis, and airway obstruction. And if they have these three bad enough to cause the actual sequence, the actual airway obstruction, then those patients will have it bad enough that they will have a cleft palate because that tongue will obstruct the actual correct formation of the palate. So you can kind of think about it like that. If you ever get a consult for Pierre-Robin and they don't have a cleft palate, you should really be questioning whether they actually have Pierre-Robin. All right, so moving on to Treacher Collins. So this is very common. We see this all the time at my hospital. But this is also called mandibular facial dystosis. 60% of these are autosomal dominant. 40% are sporadic. The gene is TCOF1. And this has variable expressivity but high penetrance. And these individuals have normal intelligence. And you can often see a whole family with these features as it is autosomal dominant. So they have bilateral symmetrical dysotosis of craniofacial structures derived from both the first and second branchial arches. And there's wide variation in phenotypic expression, but common clinical features include a combination of Tessier clefts 6, 7, and 8, a hypoplastic orbit, bilateral zygomatic complex hypoplasia, and with this you will see hypoplastic malar bones and lateral orbits, and this causes an anti-Mongolian or down-slanting palpebral fissure, an absence of the zygomatic arch, and clefted zygomas. They also have mandibular hypoplasia, so microgenia, retrogenia, and remember, genia, this is referring to the chin, okay? So a small chin. And often this presents as pure riband sequence, and they often have VPI or velopharyngeal insufficiency. They also have ankylosis of the TMJ. This involves fusion of the mandibular condyle to the base of the skull, so that's really what we're referring to when we say ankylosis of the TMJ. They also have bilateral microtia with stenotic external auditory canal leading to conductive hearing loss and speech problems. 
They also can have coanal atresia. And remember, so this is talking about the opening that connects the nasal cavity with the nasopharynx. And this is occluded by either soft tissue, bone, or a combination due to failed recantillation during fetal development. They also can have lower eyelid colobomas. Remember, this is a full thickness eyelid defect. Now, that was a lot of information. So the quick things to remember for Treacher Collins, it's cleft 6, 7, and 8. And remember, we're going to fully review clefts on the cleft episode, so stay tuned. But know the cleft pattern, and this will help you remember everything along 6, 7, 8 is abnormal. So ZMC, ears, mandible, and also the TCOF gene, which is the treckle protein. But the way I'm going to remember this is TCOF, so Treacher Collins, of course. Oh, I like that. That's cute. Next is Nager which is an acrofacial dystosis. It is autosomal recessive. Features are similar to Treacher Collins with mandible malar zygomatic hypoplasia. What separates them is the radial hand abnormalities with Nager, which is hypoplasia of the thumbs and radius. And then with this syndrome, you also get ectopic cheek hair and high nasal bridge. Next, Stickler. So the genetics for this, it is autosomal dominant. The gene is COL2A1 or COL11A, okay? I don't expect you to remember that, but just so you've heard it one time. So you have to remember, this is a connective tissue disorder, and there's a problem with the collagen. So the features are a hypoplastic midface, and remember, they have Pierre Reban, because if you remember from earlier, this is the most common syndrome associated with Pierre Reban sequence. They also have flat facies. So from an ophthalmologic standpoint, they have myopia, cataracts, glaucoma, retinal detachment, and progressing blindness. They also have hearing loss, scoliosis, and joint laxity. These patients represent 25% of the syndromic cleft palate. So if the question is given you a Pierre Robin presentation, know that it's likely stickler with a collagen issue. Now moving on to Vanderwood. It's autosomal dominant associated with chromosome 1, and the gene is IRF6. The features are cleft lip or palate. Vanderwood syndrome is the most common cause of cleft lip and palate. You also have lower lip pits, which are accessory salivary glands. And it's also associated with what's called popliteal pterygium, which is a bizarre flexion contracture of the knee and popliteal webbing. So take a look at that picture again because it's going to reinforce this. There's also hypodontia and high-arched palate. All right, let's move on to 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. So now there are microdeletions in this gene that cause a very variable phenotype and this can get pretty complicated. So technically, there are differences in these, and they can be called either 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome, DeGeorge syndrome, or velocardiofacial syndrome. So with all of them, there is failure of neural crest migration, and that is very important to remember. So the features, you can remember this by the mnemonic CATCH, C-A-T-C-H. So C, cardiac, the most common would be a VSD. A, abnormal facies. So these would be 
a broad, prominent nose, malar flattening, epicanthal folds, retronathia, and vertical maxillary recess. T, which is thymic aplasia. So these patients have immune dysfunction. C, cleft lip and palate. You will see VPI. And H, which is hypocalcemia and also hypoparathyroidism. The key thing to note for this is postoperatively, you must check a calcium level. So other things also associated with this, they have developmental delay, behavioral problems, they can have Chiari malformation, and the most important, they can have medialized carotids. So for both tests and in real life, you must be aware that especially when repairing VPI, you can encounter the medialized carotids if you choose to perform a pharyngeal flap. So questions that I've seen have asked about location of the carotids, also what lab to check post-op, which is the calcium, and also something regarding immune dysfunction. So I'm going to remember catch 22, and I'm going to play catch with my friend George, who has failed to migrate, and you can remember the failed migration of the neural crest cells. Cute. Now, to confuse you even further, I meant not to confuse you even further, the next syndrome is CHARGE. This is from a mutation in CHD7 gene. It's the second most common syndrome to be associated with cleft lip and palate after Vanderwood. So that is about 20% have cleft lip or cleft lip and palate. So the name of the syndrome is CHARGE, And that's great because the letters each stand for what you're going to see associated with this syndrome. So C, there's colobomas of the eye. H, there's heart defects. A, atresia of the nasal coenae. R, retardation of growth. G, genital and urinary abnormalities. And E, ear deafness. So the trick is to remember the genitourinary abnormalities because that's something that isn't associated with all of them. And you may get asked a question where you need to get an ultrasound of the kidneys. All right, next is McCune Albright. So the gene is GNAS1. So there are three main features to remember. Caffia lay spots, endocrinopathies, and fibrous osteodysplasia. So caffeo lay spots, these can be large pigmented lesions, and they may have hyperfunctioning endocrinopathies such as growth hormone excess. This can cause precocious puberty, and they can also have hypoparathyroidism. Next, fibrous osteodysplasia. So the treatment can be bisphosphonates, and this can be used to prevent bone resorption and help with pain. So pimendronate is one example that I've seen on the test before. The surgical indications would be disfigurement, occlusion, and this would be like occlusion of the optic canal, nerve impingement, such as, like I just said, the optic nerve, proptosis, or intractable pain. Moving on to another highly tested syndrome, that is Vactorel, V-A-C-T-E-R-L. So there's vertebral defects, anal defects, cardiac defects, tracheoesophageal fistulas, renal defects, and limbs. You need at least three of these for diagnosis of Vactorel, and it's usually one in 10,000 to 40,000, and it's sporadic. The etiology is unclear, and the condition is likely caused by the interaction of multiple genetic and environmental factors and a disruption of development. 
Now let's move on to talk about a set of disorders all associated with the first and second branchial arches. And this is craniofacial microsomia. And this has been debated about terminology, so we're not going to get into the weeds with this. But you can think of craniofacial microsomia as part of a large set of craniofacial disorders characterized by failure or inadequacy of facial skeleton and soft tissue development. So this is mostly sporadic and is a disruption in normal development. It is multifactorial, but it's possible to have a stapedial artery closure in utero versus failure of neural crest cell migration. And so within this broad category, you will see deficiency in the facial skeleton and soft tissue. And this can be unilateral or bilateral and was previously called hemifacial microsomia, but now that we know it can be bilateral, we simply call it craniofacial microsomia. A subset of these patients can be put into the category of oculo-auricular-vertebral sequence, or OAV. This spectrum includes a variable phenotype and affects a greater range of structures, including the skeletal and soft tissue components of the face, orbits, and cranium, as well as the axial skeleton and visceral structures. So you can remember these features by the mnemonic OMENS, so O-M-E-N-S. So O is orbit, they can have upper eye colobomas, M, mandible, shortened ramus of the mandible, E, ear, they have microtia with preauricular skin tags, anosia, conductive sensorineural hearing loss, N, which is nerve, possible nerve paralysis, marginal mandibular, and cradle nerve 7 paralysis. They also have S, soft tissue deficiency. These patients also have VPI from a hypodynamic palate due to the nerve involvement. So these patients can also have vertebral fusions, issues with the ribs, facial nerve, and genitourinary abnormalities. And so these patients need an MRI due to these associations. Within this is another subset of patients that we're more familiar with, and that is Goldenhar syndrome. The features to know are low hairline, mandibular hypoplasia, low set ears, microtia, and upper eyelid colobomas, auricular appendages, and vertebral anomalies. The key is epibulbar dormoids, and this looks like something stuck on the eye. This is the keyword for the test, epibulbar dermoids. Another thing that I've heard asked is a question about the auricular appendages, and just know that 100% of patients with golden heart will have those preauricular appendages. So also, these patients will need a fundoscopic exam. So next, let's talk about Pari-Romberg. So this is progressive hemifacial atrophy. You may tend to confuse this with craniofacial macrosomia, but remember, this is progressive and it is not congenital, and it follows the trigeminal nerve pattern. So onset is the first and second decade, and earlier onset is associated with more bony hypoplasia. It is more likely to be in females than males, and there is something called the coupe de sable. So this is the line along the forehead, a groove at the midline. And this is the possible first side starting. And you will see this on clinical exam. Histologically, you can see lymphocytic neurovasculitis. Other associated findings are seizures, migraines, and Horner syndrome. And these patients need to be evaluated with a brain MRI. So this has a natural exhaustion of disease and you intervene after skeletal maturity. 
The treatment is fat grafting for mild deficiency or for severe deficiency, a periscopular free flap can be used to augment the bone and soft tissue. So now as we finish up, let's quickly mention some congenital lesions. So congenital midline masses, so these can include epidermoid cysts, dermoids, gliomas, and meningioencephalocils. And these are the most important differential diagnoses in congenital nasofrontal masses. Since they arise from an abnormal fusion during fetal development, intracranial extension of the lesion has to be rolled out radiologically before therapy. And dermoids are the most common entity. The cause of the formation of these masses is incomplete fusion of the nasal processes. The spaces include the fenticulus frontalis, the prenasal space, and the foramen cecum. The types, so encephalocils, these are soft, compressible, bluish masses that transilluminate and they enlarge with crying. So these patients need an MRI for evaluation if they have intracranial extension. The most common location in America is occipital, and in Asia is frontoethmoid. So the next, dermoid cyst. So these form from dermis and nexal structures, hair follicles, sebaceous glands, and they are found at the midline from patent foramen cecum. Other masses you might encounter are the epidermoid cysts. They don't contain dermal elements like dermoid cysts. They arise from the epidermis. And then the general surgery favorite, thyroglossal duct cysts. This is seen in the neck. It extends from the base of the tongue to the hyoid and may have thyroid tissue. There is a propensity for infection, which is why you, the treatment is excision, and it's called the cyst trunk procedure. Yes, we all know the cyst trunk procedure, and that was actually on my board. So, <laughs> All right, so whew, that was a lot of information. So keep in mind, this was not meant to be comprehensive, but hopefully we gave you all the buzzwords to know for the craniofacial section of the in-service exam. Thank you, Sinan, for reviewing this with me. I know it was a little painful. <laughs> if you like our podcast, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Check out our Facebook, YouTube channel, and Instagram at The Loop Podcast for more content, quizzes, and to get in the loop. <laughs> all right.